0: decades america has struggled to combat the harms of drug use but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong what if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end join us on the journey to end it for good
1: Welcome to the End It For Good Podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison. You can always email us at podcast at enditforgood.com, or you can uh, come and visit us on the internet at enditforgood.com, and you can access the podcast there as well as other resources, including how to um, host a book discussion in your own community, no matter where you are, for free, just to get this conversation started. Um And our guest today is James Moore, and uh, James has actually been part of bringing this discussion to his community. So I live in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, central part of the state. James is from uh, Hattiesburg, uh, about an hour and a half south of here. And um, he decided that he wanted to bring a, a book discussion to Hattiesburg. And so he gathered friends together and um, they have read the book Chasing the Scream, which is the, the book that I've used with book discussions here. And now uh, James and I will be hosting our second book discussion in Hattiesburg in just a couple of weeks um, for people to just come and engage. Not everybody agrees on um, the road forward for us, but really just bringing this conversation um into people's minds and helping people begin to think about how can we get uh, better outcomes than what we have right now. So um, we're really thankful James is with us today. And this is kind of a shift from the episodes we've done so far, which have been more focused on um, kind of the, the policies and the drivers behind what we're seeing today. Um, James is joining us uh, as a father who, along with his wife, lost their son to a drug overdose almost four years ago. Uh, and one of the things that we really want to do with the show is to elevate the voices of people who are directly impacted by drug use or addiction or overdose, incarceration, recovery. Um, so just let me clearly say that the people's all people's experiences are unique. Um, and one thing we don't want to do is try to make a you know, prescriptive experience for everyone. Um, everybody's experiences are, are unique, and so um, James's experience and his family's experience and their path to to um, to healing and on that road to healing uh, is unique to them. But we hope that it can be really helpful for other people just to hear their experience um and also we want to say that not all of our aggress of our guests agree with all of the positions of end it for good and end it for good may not agree with all of the positions of our guests so um we're okay with that we can be talking about um these topics uh, without all having to agree on everything that's the whole purpose is we really want to bring together a variety of um, perspectives and learn from each other and that's okay um so this is uh james and his um Story He has uh, been willing to share it and has um, done a lot of work in using uh, the tragedy of um, their son's loss to help bring hope and healing um, to other people. So, James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, James, before I started my own journey, kind of actively learning about drug use and addiction, I didn't know anything about it. And a lot of people, I think, are in that boat unless they have been directly impacted so would you share with us kind of the story of your family's experience of walking with um your son
0: the uh, addiction uh, part of our son's life started uh in the latter part of his junior high years uh he had some uh was diagnosed with some learning uh, issues put on some prescription medications to help with that uh, those probably got passed around at school and he also discovered marijuana at that time um uh, which uh, really had a a negative effect on his ability to deal with the things he was going through. And so he had a 10-year experience with uh, this issue of this disease uh, of substance use. And we thought uh, that he had gotten past this and uh, was no longer being plagued by it. But in 2014, he approached uh, my wife, Jan, and myself and told us that he needed help with a problem. And we did not realize that uh, it had... uh, transgressed to the point to where he was an injection heroin user at that time. And as a father with Jeffrey growing up, I looked at uh, some of the things that he did uh, as behavioral issues and uh, would try to uh, uh, use judgment, uh, sometimes uh, threats of punishment, to try to get him to stop doing some of the things that he was doing. And and on the front end of it, it, it was a lot of choice. Uh, a lot of bad choices, doing things that he knew that he probably shouldn't do, but he didn't seem to experience negative consequences. Uh, But after 10 years, it had turned to a point where it was much less about choice for him and much more about just how to survive and get through the day uh, once he had acquired the full-blown disease of addiction. Um, I have come to change the way that I view uh, those with substance use disorder. I just wish that I had made that change in my mind uh, early enough when it would have made a difference for my son. Uh, when he came to us uh, in 2014 and asked for our help, uh, we got him to a doctor, which led to uh, medically supervised detox. And he was doing well for a while working in the family business, going back to school at a junior college. But a matter of months, the uh, disease returned, and he relapsed. And at that point, he made the decision to go into a 90-day inpatient program, which we wholeheartedly supported. And uh, Nolan told us that the likelihood of someone with an opioid addiction being cured uh, with one visit in rehab was highly unlikely. Uh, we really thought that this was going to be the ultimate uh, end to his troubles. But uh, 60 days into that program, uh, he was ejected from the program uh, due to smoking violations. Uh, It was a tobacco-free facility, and he had gotten caught with a sport, cigarette. So I was very upset, uh, very uh, disappointed, and uh, I picked him up, brought him home, and we had a family meeting and decided we'd just take it one day at a time. Uh, He would live with us, eat with us, work with me in the family business, go to meetings every day, and to resume seeing a counselor once a week to try to get his life together. And uh, when I look back on that week, it was really a blessed time that we had together. Uh, he was substance-free at that point. Uh, his sobriety was, was strong. His sense of humor was back. And there was an honesty between uh, us and him that we had not seen in a decade uh, as he had uh, tried to cover up his substance use. But uh, about a week after uh, we took him home, uh, he failed to answer the phone. And when I went to check on him later, I found that he had died of an overdose. Wow. And so I, I began reading uh, a lot of books to try to help me deal with the grief and the loss. And then I began to read books on the uh, uh, disease of addiction. And I realized at that point that the efforts that I had put forth in trying to rescue my son were so off base because I looked at substance use Uh, as a moral issue, or as a behavioral issue, or as a character issue. I did not treat it as the disease that it uh, has clearly proven to be. And so since his death, I tried to uh, let our story uh, be known to families who were going through what we were going through at that time uh, so that they could perhaps have a more accurate understanding of this disease, be a stronger source of support uh, rather than a source of judgment. And I've also tried to help those that are seeking recovery to understand the same. Because the a sad thing about watching our song for those 10 years. Uh, he really thought he was an inferior person because of this disease. Uh, he did not like who he was. Uh, and the only thing sadder than the way that my son died is the way that he lived, feeling that way about himself. He truly hated himself because of the addiction that he ever acquired. And so I try to speak to those that are still in the place that he was at that time to give them hope and give them encouragement. I try to encourage people who have found their long-term sobriety rather than to just look at that as something way back in their past that they don't ever want to think about again, to talk about it uh, openly, talk about it proudly, so that those that are on the path behind them can see that recovery is possible and that a full life is possible.
1: So there's...
0: Uh, 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 yeah, I'm sorry. Go
1: ahead. Well, I was going to say, there's there's so much stigma, kind of like what you're what you're talking about with your son um, around addiction. So it wasn't just the stigma that kind of the the community feels about addiction, but it's really um, in his life. And I've heard many people say this about their own addictions that that's what they believed about themselves as well. That kind of our cultural narrative of you know. Um, there's this, you know, kind of worthlessness, or, you know, why aren't, why can't you just get your life together, it sits deeply in the hearts of people who are addicted. And there's so much self-hatred that often accompanies um, that because of this narrative of stigma that we have surrounded it with so much. And that is um, made so much harder to combat by the fact that we we label that as criminal behavior. And so we label people struggling with addiction as criminals, which is, you know, makes it nearly impossible to combat stigma because you're trying to, you know, now combat the stigma of criminality, um, even if it is just use and not, you know, stealing or anything, you know, elsewhere, you're harming mm-hmm. somebody else um, like that. So like you have talked about, you have been very uh, public about your family's story and about your son's struggles and your uh, grief and road to um, healing about that, what has that been like for you? Because so many families um, have addiction in their family, and it is still something m- most families hide. Um, what has it been like for you, even on your journey towards um, uh, processing the the tragedy of losing a son, which I cannot even imagine what that's like, but what has that been like for you, um, that experience of of speaking publicly and, and publicly owning that that story in that part of your life versus uh, keeping it quiet?
0: Well, to, to let's answer that, uh, I reference back to the way that you started this podcast by saying every person's experience is different. And Jan and I had to come to accept that uh, in the very early part of this tremendous loss. Uh, and I realized that she did not need, nor was even able to grieve and process it the same way I was, nor was I able or did I need to deal with it the way that she did. So we've taken very different approaches. Mine was a very public approach. Hers has been a very uh, intensely private approach, and we try to respect that from each other. Uh,
1: and what for I- years,
0: my son tried to make me proud of who he was, and he, I know from my conversations, that he constantly felt that he was a failure in that sense. And my behavior uh, during his struggle did not help to change that, which is a big regret that I have. But what i tried to do since uh, is not live my life uh, to be defined by his death, but in a way that was inspired by his life, by his living, by his struggle, and by the person that he was. And, and that's been very um, helpful. to constantly be able to talk about him uh, in a way that hopefully will bring hope to others and understanding to those who are in a position to support others.
1: So what has been the experience for people who are hearing you um, talk about this? You do a lot of work around the state um, other than you're a business owner, you own a bike shop there in Hattiesburg, Um, but you also do a lot of work traveling all over the state, talking at town halls or, you know, treatment centers and intake, you know, on intake days when families are um, coming there with their loved one. What has been, um, what is it that you tell families that you, this is obviously a a passion of yours and what has been kind of some of the responses of families hearing you talk about um, a different way to view what they're experiencing as a family than our kind of cultural narrative of, you know, hide it and shame it.
0: Uh, I start out my talks when I'm in a family uh, setting using an analogy uh, that was uh, penned by Sam Snodgrass uh, of broken no more. It's a nonprofit. And Sam is a a recovered heroin addict of 20 years. And Sam referred uh, compares addiction to food or starvation. And he wrote a letter to families, uh, like the families I speak to, asking them what they would do if they were uh, suddenly found themselves in a situation where there was a huge shortage of food. Uh, Nobody had food to share. Uh, There was uh, either a government control or a food crisis. And he says, if you were five days into starvation, nothing to eat for five days, and you had hours to live, what would you do? Would you steal? Would you lie? Uh, How much of who you are would you give up? just to live a few more hours or to see another day and when i'm telling that reading that letter using that analogy of starvation and sam says uh unlike food our starvation our craving for these opioids happens several times a day and we have to solve it or fix it several times a day uh light bulbs belong in the uh the eyes of the family members and i'm seeing the those that are there for treatment, just nodding their heads, affirmatively. But yes, this this is what it's like. So that's that's one analogy that I found that's very helpful for those who uh, think it's just simply a matter of quitting. Uh, that that seems to be effective.
1: So that's a a, a great um, point because I, I one of the things that I've kind of. Uh, struggled with and kind of come to is, you know, as people hear you tell that story, I imagine there's listeners who their visceral response to that is, well, it shouldn't be that way well, it shouldn't be that drugs, you know, feel like the difference between life and death, which is a very common analogy that, that people use for the feeling of going into withdrawal, is it, it it feels like I am going to die if I don't, you know, get these drugs. And for people, for those of us who have not experienced that, um, I, I think that the knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, it just shouldn't feel that way. Um, and I feel like kind of what you're saying is we have to, look at these issues as they really are, not as we wish they are. Um, You know, we need to to hear the voices of people that actually have gone through this and understand what their experience really is because we have to deal with the experience as it really is, not the experience that we wish was or how we wish it was different. Um, If we don't actually acknowledge what is really going on, the lived experience of people, we're not going to find um, better solutions to actually uh, help people where they are. We're going to keep trying to match something that doesn't work um, to, you know, a problem that that is uh, predictable. People, you know, we can understand what's happening uh, if we're willing to actually acknowledge um, what the lived experience of people is versus kind of what we just wish it was or what our cultural narrative has been um, about it for uh, so long. Um, so what are some of the things that you have done as you have, um, as you said, your your wife is more uh, of uh, one who prefers to grieve privately and you have taken your grief and sort of um, turned it into wanting to uh, help people um, pursue hope and healing and help parents understand what their children are going through um, or family members understand what addiction you know, uh, is like and different things that you wish you had known back in the early days of your son's drug use um, and addiction. What are some of the things that you have done just there in Hattiesburg to try to bring that hope and healing to your own community?
0: Uh, A year after Jeffrey died, uh, we held an event in Hattiesburg at uh, one of the community buildings called A Tribute to Courage and Recovery. Because after Jeffrey died, Jen and I were sitting around one evening uh, after a meal. And I said, you know, if if he had died of cancer, heart disease, diabetes, uh, any of those things, there were events around this town several times a year where we could go and join with others, release balloons, light candles, walk around a track, wear colorful T-shirts. But I said, because of the way he died, there's nothing to honor the struggle of the addict. And so I said, you know, what if we held something like that? And her thought was, I don't think anybody would come because the shame and the stigma is just too great. But I went ahead and took a chance, and I booked the Cultural Center in Hattiesburg, and we had about 125 people come. Uh, it was to support those in recovery, and it was to honor the sacrifices of those who had failed to find recovery. And we had a candle lighting uh, component of that service. And I had no idea how many people to expect to begin with, and then I had no idea of those who came how many might want to actually get up and say a person's name out loud that had uh, died from addiction. And so I didn't have a lot of candles. But it came to that port- part in the service, and I invited people to come up, it was like the entire room came to their feet and formed a line all the way to the back. So fortunately, I kept pulling more and more candles out that I had in reserve. But it just, it, it reminded me of how this is a completely neglected segment of society. Uh, which adds, again, more to the shame and to the stigma. So the other things that I do is speak routinely at the local recovery centers to try to give people uh, who are in the position I was in trying to figure out how to support my son a little bit of the things that I've learned through the reading. Uh, Also, my son, nor I knew anything about Narcan when he died. Uh, If someone who was with him, assuming there was, had given him that life-saving uh, over those reversal drugs, uh, we would not be having this conversation now, likely. So I've gone around and trying to educate the local people that this is something that you need to have in your home, in your car, in your purse, if you have a person in your family who is a.
1: Everyone's experience is different and everyone's um, experience of their loved one's addiction will be uh, different. But what would you tell a parent who is listening, who has a child struggling with addiction and they just don't know what to do? If you sat down with them, as you do with many people who stop by your shop to talk about um, this such painful part of their life, what would you tell them?
0: I would tell them to understand that uh, it, it is a disease. It may have started out as a series of bad choices, but more than likely the point that it's at now, if it's a crisis in their family's life, it is something that is much bigger than the individual. Uh, and they don't need judgment. They need acceptance. Uh, I would plead for them and the and their loved one to be honest with each other. Uh, to try to get away from the lying that seemed to be an ingrained habit of a person who has uh, lived years uh, in the shadows of addiction, uh, but to make it as easy as possible for that person when they are ready to seek help, to step forward and ask for help. And uh, and I, I really regret as a father that I had a couple of chances to go to uh, some meetings with my son uh, once he uh, was out of the treatment. On each occasion, I had some reason where I, I didn't go or thought it would be best that I not go. And, and I can't help thinking now, had I gone to those meetings and sat proudly and publicly next to him as he began his walk uh, on the outside of that facility into a life of recovery, if that not maybe it would have made a difference. So just be supportive in every way that you can, be proud of their struggle, and know that recovery. Seldom is a situation where someone goes into a treatment facility and then lives a life happily thereafter. Recovery was once described uh, in a way that I liked as a period, uh, a group of periods of sobriety, that each period gets longer and longer until finally one period of sobriety sticks. Uh, and, and I say that because I walked into my son's home one day after we thought that he had kicked this. And then I saw the drugs that he was about to inject on the kitchen counter. And I, I threw such a temper tantrum. I, I cursed, I threw something across the kitchen. Then I picked up my tools that I'd come to pick something with and just started to the door. I'll never forget. He says, dad, you can't just leave. And, and I'm so thankful that at that point I stopped, I put him in the car and we went back home to try to have another family meeting and decide, you know, where do we go from this day forward? Uh, I wish that I could have that as a do-over rather than the judgment and the shouting and the cursing if I could have just shared the disappointment that he already was sharing towards himself uh, over that relapse. That's a message that I would try to get to families to know that you obviously have a plan not to relapse, but in the event of relapse, be prepared to handle it in a way that is supportive and not destructive
1: So what is your dream for Mississippi um, 10 years from now? What do you hope, what kind of advances do you hope that we're seeing to save lives and prevent more people from experiencing the grief that your family has been through?
0: Well, on the, on the policy end, I hope that we begin to treat this as a medical issue and not as a criminal issue. Uh, uh, I'm, of course, very familiar with uh, the book Chasing the Screen and the uh, ways that it shows that other countries have done a much more humane job of dealing with those suffering with this. When I read that book, uh, I was in the process of speaking to groups, and the, the concepts in that book were so revolutionary that I didn't even dare suggest those to families inside of a rehab facility. Uh, if I were to have talked about the concepts in that book, I would probably have been uninvited un to return as a regular speaker and I really value the opportunity to speak to those families and to those seeking recovery. Uh, but I'm so thankful that we begin to have these public discussions, uh, this book in particular, that focuses on a more humane approach to uh, dealing with this issue rather than the 100-year-old war uh, that we've been fighting in this country that seems to have more casualties than it does successes. Uh, and what, the thing that really got me interested in the book. One day my wife sent me a snippet of an email, an email that said the opposite of addiction is not recovery. The opposite of addiction is connectivity. And that was so succinct. That was so true of my son's life. He felt he had no connections, no close friends, uh, not a workplace where he felt valued and with a contributor. and even saw his relationship with his immediate family members as on life support. So it, the connectivity is one thing that I talk a lot about when I'm talking to those that are trying to find the recovery.
1: So one of the um, the things that I think has, has shifted most in my thinking is kind of um, going away from an approach for drug use and addiction that is either all or nothing, that, you know, if if you can't be a certain kind of person living a certain kind of life, then there's no steps for you uh, in between. And I think one of Um, the changes that has happened in my own thinking and that I hope we will see even here in our own state is to start where people are, kind of that radical honesty, like you're talking about being honest about where people are and what they're really struggling with. And the first step then is to say, how can we keep people alive? That's the first step. We can't help them if they're not alive. There's no, there's no more options for um, sobriety. And that's what I hope we kind of start to shift our policies to say, first, how do we keep people alive? Then how do we help them take that next step and then that next step and then that next step? Instead of saying there's this huge chasm you have to jump over all at one time. And if you can't make that huge jump, then sorry, there's just no hope. We're not going to help you. And instead shift to saying. As we do with with any other health issue, um, and even many of the the other kinds of struggles in people's lives, we say, "Okay, where are you at, and how how can we help you take steps out of that?" Uh, and that's what I hope that we we start at to say, "How can we?" Um, keep people alive, and James's work in distributing Narcan is uh, a step in that of how can we keep people alive, and then how can we talk to their family members about how to support them? How can we get people into treatment um, and recovery? How can we honor the lives of people that have been lost? Um, So we've been talking to James Moore, who is a father who has lost his son to a drug overdose about four years ago. If you want to connect with James, you can email him at moorsbike.com, at gmail.com. Is that Moore's bike or bikes, James?
0: Bikes,
1: B-I-K-E-S. Okay, so that's M-O-O-R-E-S B-I-K-E-S at gmail.com. If you're in the Mississippi area, you can stop by Moore's bike shop uh, on Hardy Street in Hattiesburg. And um, James has an area in the back separate from the bike shop where you can do the um, couple of minute Narcan training and get free Narcan uh, or you can search James Moore Hattiesburg on Facebook and connect with James that way and the work that he's doing. Uh, and what I hope people hear is that anyone in any community in this country can begin to pursue life-saving, life-affirming, life-upholding initiatives in their community. So James has a small business, and he's decided to use that as an ARCAN distribution site also Um And to use his own time to volunteer and go and and speak and share their story. Those are um, all different ways that people can use who they are, the connections they already have, um, to pursue life-saving initiatives in your own community. I hope that inspires other people who are listening to look around them and to see the options that they have and to say, I can do something. And all of us doing something together will bring change. If you want um, to email us here at the podcast, that's podcast at enditforgood.com. I am your host, Christina Dent, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison, uh, continuing to invite you to join us on this journey as we explore ending uh, our use of the criminal justice system to address drugs, um, because we now believe it's the best path to reducing harm, to keeping more people alive more people working, more people uh, investing in those connective relationships like James was talking about with their families and communities so that they can build a life that is meaningful and worth living and one they want to be present for outside of drug use and addiction and one that supports their sobriety rather than um, shaming them if they continue to struggle. Thank you so much, James, for joining us.
0: Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.